1: The following morning, my first real stop across the canal, apart from gawking at random pieces of rotting machinery, was the ghost town of Gregoryville, which is a very different sort than the one at Fayette. As far as I could tell, looking out from the empty gravel parking lot of the Maple Leaf Bar, it isn't just the people of Gregoryville, but also the buildings that are ghosts which frankly put me in a bit of a predicament. How am I supposed to sufficiently consider the mortality of our capitalist society with no ruins to look at, without rows of sagging, vacant rooftops or rusted spires to prick my imagination at its tender veins, and all this without my morning coffee? So if you're planning a trip to this area, and you need to shorten your trip by one ghost town or two, I would encourage you to start by crossing off Gregoryville. Heading east and driving by two other well-documented ghost towns, Jacobsville and White City, it occurred to me that part of the issue of navigating the Keweenaw is it's an island. There's one bridge in the middle that makes pretty much everything, not in the middle, a dead-end detour. And that's basically what every peninsula is. A gigantic geological detour that dead ends in a body of water. So these little corners, like the one ahead, are dead ends within a dead end. And don't forget that Keweenaw County itself is a peninsula off a peninsula. Altogether, it's like a compounding hall of mirrors where isolation grows. But so does, of course, the potential for peace and serenity. If you're a quiet spirit, if all you need is a party store and your family. It's pretty out here. As far as I could tell, the only thing left of White City was a couple turquoise porta-potties in the middle of Lakeside Park. And based on my years of experience in dealing with local American histories and a brief consultation with a specialist from the University of Michigan, I feel comfortable suggesting that both structures post-date the Edwardian era In the decade before the First World War, these beaches were packed with locals and vacationers. White City was a destination with its own dedicated railway. There were hotels, a roller coaster, rental cottages, a merry-go-round, high-end restaurants, and sprawling picnic grounds. And even today, on these completely empty beaches, it's quite easy to imagine. Really, if this was within 20 minutes of where you live you'd be here all the time. There's even great cell service, somehow. The weather was beautiful. Low 80s, no bugs. And the water was decently warm, at least at the shore. Apart from the long winters and short summers, the real problem for places like this is how difficult they are to get to. So you heard it here first. If teleportation ever becomes a thing, And global warming does its worst. Upper Michigan will be the next Miami. Before I go ahead to Jacobsville, I'll just share one brief story from the now vacant burg of White City. It took place at the Long Lighthouse Pier, all of which still stands. I read it in Manette's fourth volume, named for this town. He says on Sunday, June 30th, 1916, The lighthouse keeper at White City noticed a man dressed in dark suit walking on the pier at about five minutes to eight. And about three minutes later, when his wife took the glasses through which he had been glancing out over the pier, was not able to see the man, Mr. Demet, the keeper, then hurried out and called to the occupants of a canoe, who happened to be near, and together they hurried out to the pier but found no one. The possibility of suicide was suggested, as the keeper said that the man was walking as if preoccupied, and the pier is of such width as to make an accidental fall into the water, highly improbable. Several days later, Under-Sheriff McDonald went to White City with an outfit of drag hooks to search for the person. On August 13th, The body of a missing fisherman was found, just outside the entry. That's a month and a half in the water, with people actively looking for this man. I know this sort of thing happens all the time, but as I walked this pier alone in sunlight, miles from the nearest person, toward a now-empty lighthouse, I couldn't shake the question of what he was thinking in those final moments. Jacobsville, just north of White City, would almost be a twin city, or a twin town, if there were any town to twin with. Right between them is a little finished church that is literally unchanged since 1892. There's no electricity, and no plumbing. The church is lit by kerosene lamps, and the only heat source is a small wood stove. The only toilets are a pair of sloped wooden toilets, a men and a women's, and a whitewashed outhouse in the back. In spite of all this, the church still hosts services during the summer. About a mile up the road, a small sign suggests that I am now in the ghost town of Jacobsville, but the houses are all inhabited. There are cars and driveways, clothes on clotheslines, Finnish and Norwegian flags, out in the yards. As I'm looking at all of this, it occurs to me that it's probably time to revisit the definition of what a ghost town actually is. First, for something to be a ghost town, there should be an actual town. The whole point of visiting ghost towns is to be haunted a little bit by the past, to walk ruins and realize the ultimate futility of our lives the impending doom of all human civilization, and also the accidental beauty of the present, and also the things that remain. This is more difficult when standing in an empty field. Second, ghost towns need to be inhabited by ghost people, which is to say, in the very least, people who are not living. Third, you need more than a couple sad buildings, orphaned by a town that has disappeared around them, You need ghost houses, but also things like ghost churches, schools, and businesses, where all the proverbial ghosts are meant to live and work and play. Altogether, we're looking for places with tangible memories of civil vitality, where we can feel the pulse of a community and a culture now extinct. A dead town is not necessarily a ghost town, just as a dead person is not necessarily a ghost. I think part of the magnetism of these towns is down to the fact that they provide vivid encounters with the unusual, encounters with the universal outcome of all human effort and ingenuity. This look into the past is also a glimpse of the future. We all kind of want to know what it looks like when the party dies. In light of all that, I'd like to propose a brief checklist. One, a ghost town should be at least partially standing, with a handful of buildings, and two, it should be abandoned. Let's say at least two houses, something like a church or school or post office, and then a factory or business of some kind. So, one public or one commercial building. We'll call it the Keweenaw Test, or the Copper County Criterion, and encourage its adoption, in all languages and countries throughout the world, to put an end to the willy-nilly chaos that confounds us today. We might apply it to Fayette, for example, and check every box. It also follows that ghost town is a label you can lose. If new people move in, you're a normal town again with really old buildings. Calling a place a ghost town when it's inhabited by new people, even under a different name, is like calling your ex a ghost wife when she marries another guy. Or it's like calling the Washington Bullets a ghost team because they changed their name to the Wizards. We're going to assume this test as a standard and apply it from here out. So far, one to three in favor of dashed hopes and malbranding. Fayette is a ghost town. Gregoryville, White City, Inc. Jacobsville are not. The Jacobsville Cemetery was interesting, in that it's basically an old-world Finnish cemetery, airlifted to this remote corner of the North Midwest. These early immigrants often made a slow transition to English as they moved over in groups, worked in groups, and continued to speak Finnish as their primary language for more than a generation. Their tombstones are all, of course, in Finnish as well. Even the names on stones from the recent 2000s are unmistakably Finnish. Throughout the Midwest, you can find these tall, unusual bronze headstones, but they're quite rare. You always know them when you see them, and there's a handful here in Jacobsville. They were far more expensive, but the difference in quality a hundred years later between these monuments and contemporary stones is rather amazing. Part of what makes these markers so rare is that the fact that they were only manufactured from 1874 1874 to 1912, by a single company, the Monumental Bronze Company, and its subsidiary, the Detroit Bronze Company. So, the takeaway from all of this is simply, when in doubt, choose bronze. My next stop was Calumet, about 30 miles north home to the former c Mining Company, and because of this, formerly the wealthiest and unofficial capital city of Copper County. So much money was surfacing during the high tide of the Copper era that a rumor still persists that this town was nearly chosen to replace Lansing as the new capital of Michigan. There doesn't appear to be any truth to this rumor, but the fact that it still exists at all and that many locals believe it, tells you something about Calumet. The Rosette Café on Main Street, where I had my breakfast, was unsurprisingly staffed by 100% Finns. I know this because I asked. And I asked because of the Jacobsville Cemetery, and also because I've seen enough of the NHL to know what I'm looking for. People that look like Beltari, Phil Paula, and Patrick Lane, and also because I'd seen an article the night before in the Washington Post with a map of the biggest ancestral populations for every county in America. According to that map, there are only six counties in the United States in which the largest ancestral population is Finnish. All of them are here in the Western Upper Peninsula. Other Scandinavian ethnicities, like Norwegian and Swedish, are also common. Apparently the landscape and climate are similar enough to that part of the world. The first thing you notice about Calumet is that pretty much everything is red. Pretty much every building is built with what is called Jacobsville redstone, a form of heavy, durable sandstone, named for our last failed ghost town. According to Lake Superior Magazine, redstone was highly prized for its beauty and toughness, The burly stone could endure temperatures to 800 degrees before cracking or crumbling, much hotter than granite or limestone. It also retained solar heat in winter, which was a welcome perk. On a side note, you haven't been to a junk shop until you've been to a UP junk shop. Half the time, they don't know what's junk and what's not. Sometimes, it really is a heaping, smoking pile of apocalyptic rubble. Other times, it's stuff from estate sales that's been lingering in local homes since the Copper Age. I've heard of buyers from California coming from Michigan and purchasing an entire store before packing it into a semi and taking it home to liquidate at a healthy margin. Detroit may be a hockey town. Calumet is Hockeyville. Officially now, at least according to Kraft, as in... Craft Macaroni and Cheese, whose branding appears on the front of the local arena, the Calumet Coliseum, which is, by the way, the oldest continuously operating hockey rink in North America. If you have any remaining doubts as to the popularity of hockey in Calumet, you might consider two related numbers. The first, the general population of Calumet, roughly 700. The second, the seating capacity of this rink, also 700. Incidentally, the birthplace of professional hockey is Houghton, Michigan, the city right across the canal from Hancock, a few miles south of here. In 2019, the Detroit Red Wings played the St. Louis Blues in the Coliseum in a preseason exhibition. The NHL released promotional materials. Articles and videos about the game and arena, if you'd like to know more. Evidence of Calumet's former wealth is still on display in places like Chute's Bar, which boasts the largest Tiffany Glass canopy east of the Rockies. I don't know much about Tiffany Glass, or even if the claim is true, but someone told me this, and it feels like a good way to impress you with just how cool and unusual this canopy is. It's stunning. The bar itself is tiny, but the rest of the establishment is also original, and it feels like a walk-in capsule from another era. Like if someone from 1916 accidentally time-traveled into chutes today, he would probably be halfway through his first beer before realizing something was wrong. Calumet is also home to a few well-known tragedies, as most mining towns are. One of them we've covered in a past episode on the Italian Hall disaster where 73 people, including 59 children, were killed in one small building during a fire. Except there was no fire. Someone yelled fire in the middle of a Christmas party and people trampled one another in a panic attempt to get out. It's just too sad to even wrap your head around. I told this story in detail in an earlier episode of Hometown History. So I'll let Woody Guthrie tell it here, titled 1913 Massacre. Take a
2: trip with me in 1913 To Calumet, Michigan in the Copper Country I'll take you to a place called Italian Hall And the miners. Having Their big Christmas ball I'll take you in a door And up a high stairs Singing and dancing Is heard everywhere I'll let you shake hands With the people you see And watch the Kids dance Round the big Christmas tree You ask about work and you ask about pay. They'll tell you they make less than a dollar a day. Working their copper claim, risking their lives. So it's fun to spend Christmas with children and wives. There's talking and laughing and songs in the air. And the spirit of Christmas is there everywhere. Before you know it, you're friends with us all, and you're dancing around and around in the hall. Well, a little girl sits down by the Christmas tree lights to play the piano, so you gotta keep quiet. Hear all this fun, you would not realize that the copper ball stuck me men are millin' outside The copper boss thugs stuck their heads in the door One of them yelled and he screamed, there's a fire A lady, she hollered, there's no such a thing Keep on with your party, there's no such a thing A few people rushed and there's only a few It's just the thugs and the scabs fooling you A man grabbed his daughter and he carried her down But the thugs held the door and he could not get out And then others followed a hundred or more But most everybody remained on the floor The gun thugs they laughed at their murderous joke While the children were smothered on the stairs by the door Such a terrible sight I never did see We carried our children back up to their tree The scabs outside still laughed at their spree And the children that died there was seventy-three The piano played a slow funeral tune And the town is lit up by a cold Christmas moon The parents, they cried, and the miners, they moaned. See what your greed for money has done. (laughs)
1: Another lesser-known tragedy involved a loose mine cap at shaft number four of the Tamarack Mine. According to the Keweenaw Free Guide, in 1966, seven-year-old Ruth Ann Miller was playing around the number four shaft when she slipped under its cap and fell down a 4,000-foot-deep hole. When rescuers attempted to remove the shaft's concrete cap to mount a rescue, the cap broke free and fell down the shaft, making any rescue attempt impossible. The girl's body was never recovered. A new concrete cap was then placed over the mine and is still visible today through a chain-link fence that surrounds it. A memorial plaque detailing that event has been placed on the front of the fence for visitors. The Calumet Theater was one of the first municipal theaters in America and is still open for the occasional performance for a while. It was something of a cultural center for the entire Upper Peninsula. I happened to be walking by while a crew of plumbers were working, so I was able to slip in and explore. Much like shoots, it feels frozen in time. Pictures from the glory days are still up all over the building, as if the actors were on stage a month ago, or as if they're advertising the next reprisal of a favorite performance. A portrait of Richard Mansfield hangs in the back of the theater, among a host of others. It's okay. I didn't know who that was either. Apparently he was a big deal in the 19th century theater. The New York Times said in his obituary, he was the greatest actor of his hour, and one of the greatest of all times. He performed here, but how many times, and in which productions... I do not know. And it wasn't just Mansfield. All the big names came to Calumet. John Philip Sousa, Lillian Russell, Sarah Bernhardt, Eugene Debs, Harry Houdini, and so on. If you're interested in learning more, I should also mention the Calumet, or Red Jacket, as the town was known at the time, after a Native American chief was the site of one of the worst mining disasters in the history of Keweenaw County. When you hear the details, it kind of shakes you up. The facts need no embellishment or flourish to put a chill down your spine. A local tour guide, Dylan, from the Quincy Mine in Hancock, recalled the story when I asked him about it later that week.
0: I know exactly which accident you're talking about up at Red Jacket. It was either 10 or 11 workers. They were riding in a rock skip, which is used for hauling ore, basically a big metal box that they fill full of rocks. And that rock skip was being hoisted up a vertical shaft, so straight up and down. And the miniature dial, the mechanism that lets the hoist operator actually gauge where things are underground, the miniature dial suffered a failure. The chain slipped off a sprocket and it didn't report correctly. And the hoist operator didn't notice, didn't notice that the miniature was moving improperly. That bucket got over hoisted into the top of the shaft house, over the shaft. And the cable actually, the car hit the ship, which is the main pulley. They overhoisted the bucket and the cable broke. Then that car, that rock skipped and all 10 or 11 men inside fell straight down. 3,000 feet to the bottom of the shaft. If someone did the math on it before, I think they would have been falling for over 20 seconds. Just pitch black, falling down the shaft, and you know exactly what's waiting for you at the bottom.
1: It was 10 men and 10 families left to grapple with the loss of their loved ones and the horror of their final moments. A Calumet and Red Jacket news article from May 19, 1893... Headline simply, Workers Killed in Catastrophe, described one of the men's wives, waiting with his lunch outside the shaft house when he fell. The young wife of Mr. Pope had just brought her husband's dinner to him, and was waiting for him outside the shaft house when the horrible crash came. It is evident that her husband anticipated his presence, and was probably on the top of the bucket ready to greet her, apparently realizing in an instant that After the bucket had passed its regular stopping place, the true state of affairs, he attempted to jump, but missed his footing, and fell to the depths, never to be seen alive again. Just north of Hancock, I stumbled across a little overgrown cemetery, as memorable as any I visited. It was jarring, a bit hypnotic even, to even see so many large stones so neglected, in some ways it seemed to speak to the plight of this peninsula as a whole. If you ever wonder if you'll be forgotten, walk through a cemetery like this one. These people were important, and they're not anymore. They built banks, wrote letters, books, laws, married, loved, cheated, sacrificed, all of the important stuff that possesses and defines us. One of them was the very first person in Hancock to own a car today, their topsoil, underbrush, and this is in spite of their best efforts, represented by the little monuments they erected to themselves, to ensure this very thing would never happen. They've been overwhelmed by nature, like futile little trees that will never grow, increasingly framed and covered by green leaves, reaching over them, indifferent and greedy for sunlight. A short while later, in the parking lot of a small grocery, a woman saw me taking a picture of the rusty front door, and laughing, asked, Youper pictures? I said, yep, and laughed. But then I thought, wait, what? What's a Youper picture? Is that a website of some kind? I haven't been able to find anything by this name, but I really hope it exists.